Hello, my name is John Lovering and I am the host of Audio Theatre, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. And now, oh my goodness, <laughs> we've got costuming coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Amy Antonucci <laughs> is a, about to s- tell a story. Um, too bad, radio audience, you, you don't get to see the costume. You really want to be in our audience, in in studio. This is a you want to be here. Um, uh huh. Amy lives on a small permaculture farm in Barrington, New Hampshire, where she and her partner Steve grow gardens and keep animals, including bees. Amy will tell you a story now from her early beekeeping years. It is not titled "The Bee Movie," but "The Bee Moving." <laughs> And she's she's wearing <laughs> a bee. What do you? It's it? called a, a bee suit. A bee suit. Okay. A bee suit. A bee I'm suit. in my bee suit. For those of you who aren't here, you can imagine that. Um, so, this is a story about my partner Steve and I's lives as modern day um, homesteaders, and it includes an accidental practical joke. Or you might actually want to call it the terrorizing of the unsuspecting public. <laughs> but I'm going to let you all decide that yourselves when, by the time it's over, okay? So I had been keeping bees a few years. And Steve, my partner, had um, originally had some reservations about this. The idea, he thought, of bringing boxes with thousands of stinging insects into our yard uh, didn't sit really great with him. But he had been um, becoming won over by the beautiful little girl, you know, the bees and the work they did, or maybe more from the honey. But in any case, we'd been winning him over. And he had even been helping me out and had gotten interested in this idea of taking pollination contracts. Now, what that means is that farmers and orchardists would contract with us to move our bees around to their farms during the bloom time. Now, I was really excited about his interest, but I was skeptical that moving bees would really be worth it or easy, okay? Um, But, yeah, he he thought it would be. We did get the chance to give it a try, though, when we heard about some folks in the Hampton, New Hampshire area who were selling some hives. They were getting out of the business and were ready to sell off what they had. So we suited up and got into Steve's van to check out what they had. So we went down to this field at the end of a dirt road with these big cornfields around and met with the beekeeper, and they were about... I don't know, five or ten other folks who were interested in buying some of the hives. And it was kind of a scene because these folks were newer and they hadn't remembered to bring their veils. And so there's like some swatting and some running and some yelling. But, you know, it was, we were keeping it together. So um, the hives looked good, though. So we picked out our two and got to securing them for the voyage home. Um, so for those of you who don't know, A beehive is made out of these wooden boxes, and each box has frames inside there, and they're stacked on top of each other to make like one container for them. 
for the beast. There's a bottom board and a top cover as well. And there's an entrance in the front, and they had already secured that with um, you know, a piece of like wire mesh to keep the bees in, you know? So that all making sense? Yeah, I see some nods. Okay, good. So um, usually, so all we had to do was get some, some wire, uh, not wire, some mesh cords and kind of ratchet those down and kind of make it into one package that was easy to move, hopefully. So usually people, when they do this, they then put the hives on the truck to move somewhere, but we did not have a truck. As I mentioned before, we had a van. And this is one of those vans that had not a side door, but just a back lift-up door. Okay. And when we went to put the hives into the back of the van, what we found is they were just a little too tall <laughs> to fit in. So um, you don't really want to tip a hive on its side. You know, the frames are going to knock around, they're going to squish bees, they're going to really make them angry, okay? But choices were limited, so we just, just a little tiny bit of tipping and moving in and then standing back up, and whew, we did it. And it was really worrisome to watch. This is also heavy. It was probably 200 pounds or so. So they got it in, they, Steve and the, the seller, and got them settled, and whew, okay, all done, we thought. However, the seller pulled me aside and said, you know, when we were putting those in, it seemed to me that one of them maybe sort of shifted, which would mean that a crack might have appeared between the boxes where the bees could now come and go. Okay. So he recommended that we wear our bee suits home, and I <laughs> concurred. I definitely concurred. So with this possibility in mind, we started to move more quickly. We kept our veils on, we got in the car, we you know, shut the doors and we got on the road. So Steve was driving and I was watching the bees. Were those screens over your faces? Yeah, I'll show you though, I can't really it's remit. So oh yeah, okay. So we have our veils on. Um you can still hear me, right? So we are driving, and I am looking, and we are driving, and I am looking, and, well, it became clear that this was no longer a potential crack in the bee seal. There was a crack. And at first there were a few bees, and then there were a few more bees, and then there were a lot of bees in the car. And now they were generally, though, being attracted to the windows. I don't know if it was the light or what, but they were going up against the windows, and it actually started to get sort of dark in the car. So we're still all suited up. So I thought, you know, I'm not worried about getting stung. We're going to be okay. But it could be really distracting to the driver to realize that a swarm of bees was closing in on them. So my first defense against this danger was to downplay the situation to Steve. So I told him, oh, I think there are a few bees getting out, but it's not that bad, really. <laughs> and then I began to construct a barrier between the front seat and the, and the back with anything I could get my hands on. So I was, you know, still trying to keep my seatbelt on and reach back. And we had one of those, um, those mattress pad things that are, look like egg crates. So I, I got that up and I tucked it behind one seatbelt and behind another seatbelt and it was, you know, just kind of kept my hands up and just kept peeking back and saying, oh yeah, no, it's not that bad. No, it's okay, it's not that bad. And um, what happened though is that bees did start to pop around the edges. So he was starting to catch in on that, you know, maybe it really is that bad. So it was around this time that we had to admit to ourselves that we had another problem. We were running out of gas. Oh, no. <laughs> Being stranded in this sort of situation was just not okay. So we decided we had to stop at a gas station. Um, we got to one in the stratum area and stopped the engine and turned to each other. Steve said, let's open the windows and let all the bees out. And I said, I just paid for those bees. So he deferred to me. We jumped out of the car. 
He went to fill up the gas tank, and I went to make sure all the windows were closed so I wasn't losing my expensive bees. Um, and this is where the public terrorizing part of our story comes in. This is a busy weekend afternoon, and we were not alone at the pumps. And remember what we were wearing. These all-white full body outfits covering our face and everything that, you know, to a beekeeper is clearly a, a bee suit, but to someone else might look sort of like maybe a hazmat suit. <laughs> and this was, you know, kind of not that far away from 9-11, and this was not that far from Seabrook, New Hampshire, and so people were looking, for sure. And the man at the pump next to me he had turned, and he was just openly staring at this point. And he said to me, ma'am, I don't know why he has Southern accent, but he did. I'm not making that up. Ma'am, is there something you folks know that the rest of us should know? <laughs> and I just told him truthfully, if you aren't traveling with, with us, sir, you have nothing to worry about. <laughs> we unfortunately did have to continue traveling with ourselves all the way to Dover, um, which we did make with most of the bees still with us, uh, only two stings to Steve. We got the hives out, only dropped them a few times, um, but got them settled by evening and doing their thing. Steve, however, has never again suggested moving bees for pollination opportunities again. <laughs> That was excellent. <laughs> Best bee story I ever heard. Yeah, you folks at home, um, well, big white full suit, headgear, all uh, screens. Um. <laughs> Our first storyteller is Michael Lang. He grew up in Durham, New Hampshire, and has spent many years working as both a ropes course facilitator and as a wilderness guide. He now works through his small business, The Coyotes Inkwell, great name, as a storyteller and writer. The story that he will share with us tonight is clearly and concisely titled, My Dog. <laughs> Michael? It has been said that when you leave this world and pass into whatever is beyond, all of the dogs who have been part of your life will be waiting for you on the bank of a great river. They will be on the far side. And if you have been kind to them, if you have shown them respect and cared for them, they will swim across and they will help you on into the next world. But if you have been cruel to your dogs, if you have not shown them respect and not been kind to them, then they will turn away from you and leave you to wander forever between the worlds. I hope that when I find myself on that riverbank, it is wintertime. Because my dog, Samantha, would never swim across a river. She hated water. But if the river were frozen, and if there were two or three feet of snow on top of it, she would happily bound across, darting this way and that, her tail wagging all the while. When I was very young, we had no pets in our household. I was allergic to almost everything under the sun. But one day, like magic, all of my allergies suddenly went away. It wasn't long after that, that we discovered my vision impairment, an impairment that could get more severe as the years went by, and that could leave me completely blind one day. My mother decided that I should have the experience of caring for a dog, just in case I ever needed a seeing eye dog. And so, Samantha, Sam, came to join our family. I was 12 years old when we brought home that little playful puppy. Being half husky and half yellow lab, she soon grew to a very large and very energetic ball of white and golden fur. At first, the kitchen was Sam's domain. But after a few weeks, it became apparent that the only room in our entire household that was even remotely puppy-proof was the basement. And so that became Sam's room. We all soon settled into the routine of living with a dog. Everyone took turns caring for Sam. Whoever was up first in the morning would open the basement door and Sam would come charging up to happily greet whoever it happened to be. After Sam had been fed, we would 
take her out for her morning walk. When it was my turn, she would bound along, dragging me down the road around the neighborhood. But she would stop without warning to sniff at rocks and trees. And if a squirrel should be foolish enough to cross our path, she would take off like lightning, with me being dragged behind in her wake. After Sam had been out for her morning walk, she would be sent back down to her room. My older brothers and I would be off to school, our parents off to work, and Sam would be alone. No one trusts a dog in a household unattended. In the afternoon, whoever returned home first would let Sam up, and she would be free to lounge about the house or to play in the backyard. While my brothers and I were doing chores outside, she would often sit on her rope. But again, if she saw a squirrel, she would take off running. When we were stacking firewood, she would run back and forth. When we were raking the yard, she would chase after the leaves that rose up on the wind, and she would steal the largest of sticks that we gathered and flop down in the shade to chew upon them. In the evening, Sam had dinner with the rest of the family, and at bedtime, she would go back down to the basement, down to her room where her crate was. Now, we had tried to give Sam a pillow for years, but every time, she would happily tear it open and then sprawl in the midst of its shredded remains. <laughs> we all learned the routine, but Sam learned it better than any of us. She knew exactly what time we should be down in the morning. She knew exactly what time we should be home in the afternoon. And she knew exactly what time was bedtime. She also knew who would enforce the rules. And she knew who would let her get away with mischief. Being the youngest of three boys, it was often me who would chase her around the house and play with her. We would wrestle and we would tussle until fur flew in great clumps and we both lay tangled in a heap on the floor. Now and then, I would drop tidbits from the table. Anything that hit the floor would immediately be claimed, whether it was an ice cube, a grape, a carrot, a pea, the jalapeno pepper that escaped from a sandwich. <laughs> when a sand dollar fell from my mother's basket of treasured seashells, Sam was on it in an instant. One Christmas... The quilted, thumb-sized baby Jesus fell from his safe manger on the advent calendar, and there was nothing anyone could do. In less than a heartbeat, our Savior was gone. <laughs> Sam was only a puppy when we discovered that she had health problems of her own. She had a disorder that caused seizures, and even though we gave her medicine to prevent them, now and again, she would have one. Every time Sam felt a seizure coming on, she would run through the house looking for me because she knew that I would sit by her on the floor, that I would tell her everything was going to be all right and comfort her. And so even though the entire family cared for Sam, she became my dog and I became her human, especially after my older brothers left the house. I was studying outdoor education at the University of New Hampshire when Sam suddenly started not acting like herself. She was very lethargic. She didn't want to go out and play. She didn't want to go out and go for her daily walks. It was then that we found out that Sam had cancer, and we were told she would probably only live another six or eight weeks. Well, my parents and I, we both went out of our way to make Sam happy and make her comfortable. When my brothers came home for Christmas, they too went out of their way to spend time with Sam. A few weeks passed, then six, then eight, then twelve. Before we knew it, it was springtime. Then it was going on summer. As autumn approached, Sam seemed to be getting worse, and we all thought that soon it would be time to say goodbye. But as winter drew near, Sam began to be better. She began to have more and more vigor in every stride, and before the first snowflakes fell that year, Sam was bounding about like the dog we all knew and remembered. Sam lived on for another six long, happy years. And I don't know what it was that made her live that long, but I like to think that it had something to do with that holy infant she scarfed as a puppy. <laughs> this one thing I do know. When it's time for me to leave this world, I look forward to seeing my dog on the banks of that river. 
And I know that as we go on to the next world, if Sam is to be my guide, we're going to have to stop and sniff at every rock and every tree along the way. And we will chase every squirrel who is foolish enough to cross our path and every leaf that rustles on the breeze. We'll be so busy having fun, we may never reach our destination. But that's all right. For after all, it's the journey that matters and the friends who go with us along the way. My dog. Thank you. All right. First, let me just hear from John Lovering. Are you going to step up will, here? Yeah. All right. We have enough time. It turns out it's hard to ever know if everyone's going to be within their time or not. But um, I don't have a prepared introduction. But I will say that this is John Lovering. He is the longtime host of Audio Theater, a great supporter of this radio station, and many other wonderful endeavors around this area. He's an excellent community member who taught school for 30, 35 years, years science, biology, biology. To in high school. Yes. Whew. And he's still here to tell us about it, but I'm not sure that's what he's going to tell us no, about. We're going to dissect frogs. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, that's not the hat he's wearing, but here he is to share a funny story with us. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I hope you feel that way after I'm done. Um, it was uh, August 31st, 1954. I was only seven years old, and I was staying at a cottage on 4th Street in Hampton, New Hampshire. My parents owned this cottage, and they, were, they had a larger cottage right in front of it, which was right on Route 1, right across the sea from what then was a stone seawall, like it is in Rye now. It wasn't the metal seawall, and Route 1A was a two-lane highway. It wasn't divided like it is now. And uh, we woke up that morning of the 31st, and the wind was howling, and my sister and I were laughing, because I had a sister who was 13. Her name was Carol. And it seems that day, my parents had been talking the night before, that Carol was going to visit us on the, uh, the next day, on the 31st of August. Now, we thought this was really funny. Carol was my sister's name. Carol was the name of one of the worst hurricanes to ever hit New England. But we didn't know that that was going to happen, and I was laughing, and we said, hey, Carol's coming, and I heard my father say, the winds are going to be twisting and swirling, and I said, you're going to be doing the twisting and the swirling, and we were laughing, and we had a heck of a good time laughing about it. My grandmother was staying with us. Her name was Gertrude. That gives you an idea of the kind of person she was. She was from... <laughs> She was from New Jersey, and she had come up to stay with us for the summer. Uh, she was a kind of a woman that always had her hair done, red nails, always dressed to the kill. You know, had beautiful jewels and all this. And I don't know, I don't know how she got those things because she didn't have the proverbial pot to you know what in. But anyway, <laughs> that's she always tried to look the pot. Well, she was sitting in a rocking chair. Now this cottage had three rooms, two bedrooms and then a living room, kitchen combination, and a little tiny bathroom. All the windows in the cottage were the kind, they weren't sash windows. They didn't open from the bottom. They, they opened from the inside. You pull them open, and they open like a cupboard. So I say that because soon they were blowing open. And uh, anyway, my aunt was, I mean, I, my grandmother was sitting in the rocking chair, rocking back and forth, and I remember this huge white pocketbook, and she had it on her lap and had her hands gripped over the top of it, and those red nails on the white uh, pocketbook, I can still see it. I close my eyes, rocking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And my sister and I were down on the floor in front of the couch laughing because we thought it, she was funny. This whole thing was funny. Then the building began to shake. My father went outside because he had bought his first new car that he ever owned. The man lived to be 91, and he never bought a new car before or after that. Uh, it was a 1955 Pontiac. He had just bought it. And, of course, the wind was blowing. We had about 80, 90-mile-an-hour gusts coming in off the water, and we were right open to the ocean, uh, and the sand was just blowing down the street and sandblasting his new car. The police had asked us to leave and go to Hampton Academy. My father refused. He was going down with the ship, and we were going with him. <laughs> so 
So he went out and he kept moving the car from place to place. He'd go out wherever way the wind was coming. He'd try to get the car positioned on the back side. Then the wind would shift. He'd go out and move it again. Then he got hemmed in because I remember looking out. My mother was swearing at him. And um, leaving me here, you... Uh, anyway, I, I looked out the window and the power lines were leaning over, the, the poles, and the, the power lines were hitting each other and all these sparks were flying in the street. Then the lines went down on the road. Then I started crying. I wasn't laughing anymore. I was really scared at that point because I could hear snap, snap, rip, tear, snap. The shingles were going off the roof. And pretty soon the windows started blowing open. The, co the whole cottage was rocking. They were only built on cedar posts. They didn't have foundations. And the cottage was rocking, and the cupboard doors opened, and the dishes started falling out. The, the, there was a large lamp in our kitchen area that was swinging back and forth. And my father was trying to, he came in, he was trying to nail the, the windows together. My mother had pots everywhere because the water was pouring down through the ceiling. And my father said, this was an open roof, all rafters. It didn't have a ceiling. You could see the rafters right up to the roof. We could see daylight through the cracks. And my sister and I were so scared, my father said, Nana, that's what, my grandmother, you, Nana, you three are going into the bathroom because that's the only place that had a little tiny window up near the top. And there wasn't flying glass he was afraid of. So he thought that would be a good place. So my, my grandmother went in there. Where did she sit, of course, was on the toilet. <laughs> now the seat was down, and she had her, her, her raincoat on, her white pocketbook, and her nails, and she was rocking back and forth. <laughs> my sister was at, down, sitting down on the floor and had a hold of her right leg. I sat on the floor holding her left leg, and we were crying, Nana, Nana, we're going to be okay, and we would cry. And she, this went on, and then we heard bang, and all of a sudden there was a ripping and pulling and cracking of lumber and nails, and all of a sudden our entire porch lifted up. The wind had gotten under the porch on the front of the house, lifted it up and took our porch, the railing part of the stairs, took it right over the top of the cottage and slammed it through the cottage next door, where later on we learned that the man was sitting right in front of the window that it hit, and he was severely injured. But we didn't know that at the time. And when that sound happened, I can't describe it. It was like a roar of a uh, of a train with cracking, snapping, and, and screeching of nails as they t the squealing as they were pulling out. And I, I looked for my grandmother for comfort. Nana, are we going to be okay? And this is what she said. Oh, Jesus, God, we're all going to die. <laughs> and yet here he is. Years later to tell us about it. Thanks, John. Papa Joe Gaudet. He's a New England storyteller who performs interactive folk tales to family audiences from a place called Cowhead, Newfoundland. Ever been there? Apparently, Papa Joe has. Uh, to Austin, Texas. Papa Joe will now tell us a family story that he learned from his mother titled Joseph, a name story. Name story, my name's Joseph, and how I got that name is, is what this story is all about. So, my parents had ten children, I'm number seven, and it was winter time, and my mother was eight months pregnant. Um, we had a three-bedroom home, so there wasn't a lot of space. And the kids were getting particularly rowdy that day, and she was trying to think of some way to, to calm them down, and she, she was... The, the, invented games and things on the spot and this is her way of handling it was to say children gather around okay sit down Dodie go over and get your father's hat yeah the Sunday best one and Johnny give me a piece of paper Cindy go over and pick out a book and Diane get me a pen and then she took that book and she set it in her lap. She took the, the hat and she set it beside her. She set that pencil down in that little ridge, you know, on the, on the book. She took the piece of paper and she folded it in half. And then she sort of tore it, put the two pieces together and, and folded them in half. And then she tore it on that fold. And then she put them back together again. And one more time she tore it. So she had eight pieces of paper. And she said, we're having a new baby. The doctor says it's going to be a boy. 
time to pick out a name. Now, I was thinking you guys might like to help me with this. Well, they did. She said, well, I think I'd like to call him Joseph. So she took that first piece of paper and she set it on the book and she took the pencil and she wrote J-O-S-E-P-H and she folded it up and she put it in the hat. And then she turned to my sister Dodie. She said, Dodie, what would you like to name your new little brother? And Dodie was, Albert. <laughs> my mother said, Albert. Dodie, why do you want to call your new little brother Albert? And Dodie said, we'll name him after Albert Einstein and he'll be a genius. My mother said, that's nice, Albert. And she wrote on the next piece of paper, she wrote, J-O-S-E-P-H, folded it up, put it in the hat. Then she turned to my brother, John. She said, Johnny, what would you like to call your new little brother? And Johnny said, trash. My mother said, Johnny, that's not very nice. He said, Trash. I already got a brother. He's just a baby. Can't play with him. Might as well just throw him in the trash. My mother said, fine, Johnny, trash. And she wrote J-O-S-E-P-H. Folded it up. Put it in the hat. Turned to my sister, Cindy. Cindy, what would you like to call your new little brother? And Cindy said, Claude. My mother said, Claude. Cindy, why do you want to call him Claude? She said, Claude starts with a C like Cindy. My mother said, okay, Cindy, Claude. And she wrote, J-O-S-E-P-H. Folded it up, put it in the hat. Turned to my sister, Diane. Now, Diane, what would you like to call your new little brother? And Diane said, Eric. My mother said, Eric. What a wonderful name. Why do you want to call him Eric? She said, Eric means strong. And that means when he grows up, he can beat up Johnny. <laughs> yeah. My sisters had a hard time with my brother, Johnny. My mother said, oh, okay, Diane. Eric. And she wrote, J-O-S-E-P-H. Folded it up, put it in the hat, and turned to my sister, Joyce. Joycey, what would you like to call your new little brother? And Joycey said, Trash. You see, Joyce was named Joyce Claire after John Clifford, my older brother. They, she, my mother thought if she gave her the same initials, he might not bother her so much, but it didn't really work out. And I think Joyce was just looking for anything to, to get a little closer to him. My mother said, Okay, Joycey, trash. And she wrote, J-O-S-E-P-H. Folded it up, put it in the hat, and turned to my brother, Gary, who was just about to turn two. <laughs> Gary, what would you like to name your new little brother? And Gary said, Stuffy. <laughs> yeah, he was going to name me after that rabbit that he used to sleep with. My mother wrote, J-O-S-E-P-H. Folded it up put it in the hat, and when my father got home, he had to pull one of those names out of the hat, and of course, he pulled out J-O-S-E-P-H, Joseph, and that's how I got my name. Thank you very much. Next up, we have Deborah Chabonnet. She lives with her husband and two daughters in Kittery. Although new to the storytelling genre, Deborah is not new to performing. In events, she plays drums, the flute, and she's a figure skater. <laughs> Deborah also had a special lizard in her life. <laughs> and she's going to tell us that story now in Reflections on Three Years of Caring for an Iguana. Yes, the title of this audio story is Tales of Terror. Now, in 1992, I graduated from the University of Maine in Orono. I was up in Maine 
living uh, with my husband, Michael Reed, at the time, and our little daughter, Leanne. And she was a baby, about one. Graduated college and moved down to what's considered the North Shore of Boston area. Now, Michael Reed had told me that I could get work in my career field down in the Danvers area. He knew the area himself. He had lived in Swampscott and Beverly when he was younger. I had never been to the North Shore area, but I took his word and I did apply for work at the location he told me to. I got the job, so I began working as a recreational therapist at Hoganberry Regional Center. I did activities there and started my first job after college. We moved into Salem, Massachusetts. I had never lived in Salem, as I mentioned, and everything was new to me. I'm working, Michael's working, the baby's happy, all is good. I come home from work one day, and there's an iguana in my house. <laughs> I had never communicated to Michael that I would want an iguana as a pet. In fact, I was quite sure I told him I didn't want any pets because we had the little baby and it was just so much to do. But no, he came home with an iguana. So I had to learn how to take care of an iguana. And I've got to tell you, the iguana is a great pet to have, very quiet. That's a positive thing about the pet. But I was new to having an iguana, and emotionally, I had a hard time warming up to it. I guess on an emotional level, I felt that the iguana was like a kimono dragon. I had a hard time bonding, but I took care of it. Michael made in a cage for the iguana inside this apartment we were living at. Now, iguanas initially you buy, and they're pretty small, maybe about a foot long with a tail that's maybe another six inches, and they usually give you a small cage for it, or a glass terrarium. Well, it only stayed in that small cage a couple of weeks, so Michael created a bigger cage for it, which was nice, but he also wanted the iguana to have a log perch because we had this hallway in the apartment with a skylight and Michael thought oh let's put a couple of branches across this hallway and let the iguana perch happy under the skylight fine go ahead Mike just keep track of them <laughs> well he didn't keep track of them too good and one day it was gone off of his perch we would put the iguana in the cage overnight and take it out occasionally you know put it on the perch well it wasn't there and i said mike try to find it but you know i gotta go to work whatever it was like two or three days. Nobody had seen the iguana. We were pretty sure it didn't leave the apartment because we were a second floor. Could an iguana really open a door, go downstairs, open another door to get out? No. So the iguana was hidden somewhere in the apartment. We did find him. Safe. Clever little thing. It had tucked himself and perched himself on some cables that were behind the refrigerator, like the actual refrigerator you open to get your food on one side. But the back side against the wall, he had crawled up in there somehow and was perched on some wire cable like it was his new tree. <laughs> Amazing it was found, but we had him back. The thing about the iguana, you would feed it fresh lettuce or, you know, kale, and every once in a while I would supplement it with the mealworms. Fine. I can go down to the pet store and buy the mealworms. Um, you drive from Bridge Street in Salem over the bridge to Rantoul Street in Beverly, go to Curious Creatures Pet Shop, and buy some mealworms. No problem. If the drawbridge wasn't up, because it was like the bridge scene, once you get the bridge up for the boats to go by, the whole town is gridlock. You could be a half an hour going two feet. You know how it is before we got the bridge here fixed. <sighs> Anyways, I would buy the mealworms. Michael would eat them. And I got them for the iguana. He was just trying to show off. Now, there was two types of mealworms you could get. One is a little white tub, and they were maybe a quarter inch long, and they didn't really move much. And you would put them in the cage, the iguana would come down. 
Then there was the other type of mealworm. These suckers were two and a half inches long. And let me tell you, the little legs on the front half of it would squirm around like eight of them. And I, Michael, he was having some mental health issues at the time because he would say, they taste great. And he would put his head up and he would dangle that two and a half inch mealworm over his mouth. Then he'd drop it in and crunch it. Oh, man, I had a hard time with it. I told him it disgusted me, whatever. It was only one of the relationship breakers. But <laughs> he would do it when his sister came in, say, hey, come look at my iguana. This is what we feed him. The iguana would have his mealworm and have a couple, and his sister would say, oh, that's nice. And then Michael would take a mealworm and eat it himself. Crazy. Anyways, I had to move across town because Michael decided he needed to spend time at the Beverly Hospital suddenly. And so the landlord said, you need to move. So I moved across town to a very nice neighborhood um, that we won't talk about. But I would love Salem. I lived behind the Witch Museum. It was a really nice neighborhood, quiet um, cemetery, um, classic colonial buildings. It was great, but I couldn't stay in the apartment. You think that iguana cage fit through the doors when I had to relocate? Not a shot. It was a big cage and I couldn't get it out of the doors. So I went to the pet shop and talked to one of the people there. Fortunately, I was able to befriend a person there who knew about iguanas and he came to my apartment with the tool needed, he broke down that cage for me, and we got the cage across town, erected it into the new apartment, and the iguana was happy again. Whew, it was quite a project. So now the iguana's growing, and everything's good, and I relocated, my baby's happy, and she didn't mind the iguana. But the tail wasn't quite right. Like, iguanas are supposed to grow and shed their skin, but something on the end of the tail got all balled up and scaly-like, but like a white scale ball like this. <laughs> it, this is like a squished-up tissue. And it was somehow scales on the end of his tail that just wasn't right. I remember my little daughter and I are walking around the apartment, and we let the iguana come out and play every once in a while I would take it out he'd walk around the apartment well iguanas whip their tail back and forth like just a natural thing they they do this whippy action on that tail and one time when he whipped his tail back and forth five times fast it hit the side of the chair and Three inches of the tail flew off. It was dead, and it, like, flew across the room, and me and my daughter go, ah! Gross! Gross! I knew it was scaly at the end of the tail, but, man, that was a bit much. I kind of got uh, tissues and picked up the dead thing and tail pot and threw it away. Good thing I kept in touch with that friend from the pet store. I talked to him about it. He did agree that the tail didn't look good. He came by, took a look. We had become friends, which was good. I needed somebody to help me with this iguana from time to time. He looked at the iguana and said, yeah, the tail's just not quite right. We gotta chop it off. <laughs> really? I thought we gotta, if you say so, tell me what we should do. He chopped the tail off, and I'll tell you in advance, the iguana thrived. But we had to perform the procedure. So the iguana by this time was about a foot and a half, and half long in the body. And the tail was like three feet long, but it gets really narrow at the end, you know. But we had to take off like seven inches of the tail at the very, very end where it tapers down. And so... My friend got the iguana and sat him on the bed with my kitchen cutting board underneath the tail part of him. And I got a towel, and the iguana was used to being handled and held, so he would just sit there if somebody put his hand on him. He would just sit there. 
We put a towel over his head and his body, and I had to hold the front abdomen head area of the iguana while it was under the towel. So I was holding the towel. The iguana was very still. And my friend, I got to tell you, I got to give credit to this guy, Michael Rantoul. <laughs> That's not his name. He lived on Rantoul Street. Michael Rabone. Michael Rabone. He took my petite chef knife from the kitchen. It was a good quality chef knife. And in one fell swoop, dropped that knife on the tail of the iguana. And afterwards, we put the iguana back in the cage. Now, the iguana didn't, didn't make a sound, but that was his thing. Very quiet pet. <laughs> the iguana did, when the, when the knife was cutting through the flesh of the tail, the iguana did give the, I guess you would call it the startle response, you know, real quick. And when he put it in the cage, he scampered to his favorite area to perch on and just looked around. And he was okay after that, and his tail mended perfectly fine. Like I said, about seven inches came off at the end. Well, I couldn't stay in that apartment much longer. Well, I could have, but I didn't want to. This apartment, neighborhood, not too good for me. So I uh, was there about a year. And when the lease was run its course for a year, I told the landlord I'm moving out. So my friend Mike dismantled that cage for me again, Mike Ramboni. And I moved to Ipswich. And I stayed there with the iguana. Now, I didn't take the cage to Ipswich. My friend from the pet shop took the cage. He said he had other reptiles he was going to use it for. I said, fine. Um, I had a closet that the iguana was going to live in. So the iguana lived in the closet for uh, maybe six months or so. I made the determination that I wasn't going to keep the iguana. I just needed to figure out what to do with it. Um, I called the Ipswich Petting Zoo, and the Ipswich Petting Zoo, when I called, they said, would you take an iguana? I'm looking for a home for an iguana. And the lady who answered the phone said, in a New York minute. Yes. I remember clearly what she said in a New York minute. You don't hear it a lot. So that afternoon, I was able to drive the iguana down to the petting zoo, and it found a new home there with lots of other iguanas, and I did visit it. Me and my girlfriend and our children went down to the petting zoo a couple months later when the weather was nice, and we went to the petting zoo, and looked at the reptile area, and everybody's like, which one, Ziggy, which one's yours? You got 20 iguanas running around, like I'm supposed to say, oh, it's that one standing there with its head turned this way. No, it's the green one with the black stripes. They're all the same color. <laughs> Anyways, it was an interesting time I had with that iguana, and I'm glad they're over with. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I do love a happy ending. <laughs> Next up is Craig Worth. Craig volunteers for hospice and pet therapy and, oh yeah, he's a singer-songwriter who's been touring internationally now for how long, Craig? Oh, about uh, six, seven, years, seven six, years. Six or seven years. And can you name some of the countries where you've performed since you took your leave of absence from teaching? Well, Australia and, and Scotland and England and... Uh, you could come a little bit okay. closer to say that. Australia, England, Scotland, the Netherlands, Germany, and the U.S. and Canada. How cool mm. is that? It's cool. Thank you. <laughs> Many of Craig's original songs are stories. This one was inspired by the arrival of the first television in his father's New York City neighborhood. Craig will tell us a brief story about the song's creation. I love hearing about the creative process, don't you? And then he'll sing... Mr. Barker's Magic Box. Craig. Thank you. Thank you. I am Craig Worth, and tonight I'm here as a storyteller, a songwriter, and a son. This is a story about beginnings, the beginning of my father's lifelong friendship with television and the song that it inspired. 
At my father Charlie's memorial service this past June, we had a gathering of acquaintances, friends, and relatives assembled at the well-worn VFW Hall in Milford, New Hampshire. Pop would have been pleased with the venue, as he was a veteran of World War II, and the price was right. <laughs> I officiated at the event since I am the most public of the shy Worth kids, and it was my great honor to serve, though I was fearful at this forum, as fearful at this one as at any uh, in my long history of presenting on stages. My biggest fear was losing control over my emotions. Despite a natural shyness and a very quiet childhood, I now have a fairly strong propensity and a decent skill set for entertaining and presenting. But my Achilles heel is my heart. It rules the day. And if the right recipe of emotional content and potent memories, sweet or tragic, appear, I can become speechless and even breathless in an instant. My father's memorial service was the ultimate opportunity for this paralysis to occur. So much unfinished business, such sadness to our misalignment over many years, so much overpowering beauty in his noble and courageous exit from this life, that I feared I could go as silent as a stone at any point in the afternoon. As it turned out, but for pregnant pause here and there, it all worked out with a fairly constant and coherent flow. At the end of the organized bits and outlined speeches by me and a few siblings, we opened up the floor to anyone else who cared to participate. I was delightfully surprised at the number of others who had something to say. One aged woman got up and said she had a secret to share with us about Charlie, something our mother didn't know. <laughs> My heart contracted <laughs> at the thought that she was about to reveal details of some pornographic affair. Uh, but her content was wholesome and endearing as she told of quiet moments of conversational connection and chivalrous acts of kindness from Pop. From all who spoke, a chain of soft sentiments and stories ensued, all of it sweet and lovely. Toward the end of the flurry, my father's cousin Richard rose to speak. Richard is one of my father's closest relatives since childhood and one of the very few left from their generation. Um, Pop was his older cousin, who he greatly enjoyed the company of. Richard and his sweet wife, Ursula, visited Pop once a year or so in the last decade of Pop's 86 years. Richard's a sweet and quiet man, so I was a bit surprised to see him volunteer for frontline memorial duty. He walked humbly to the front and addressed the pin-drop crowd with a soft and emotional tone. I am Charlie's cousin Richard, he said. Charlie was a lovely man, and I am lucky to have spent much of my childhood with him. There are many stories I could tell about our times together, but there's one that sticks out for me today. Richard went on to tell a story none of us had ever heard before. This in itself was shocking. I naively thought that after knowing Pop for all of my 57 years, I must have heard it all. I did just at every sentence that man had to say over those years, as he was a man of few words. Not that he didn't have much to say, more that he had too much to say and the pathways out were pinched and blocked by trauma and, well, manhood as he lived it. Still, we drew stories from him throughout our lives, and I thought we'd caught them all. Richard told us about the day television first came to their neighborhood. My father was visiting at Richard's house, along with his own father, Henry. Richard heard that the neighbor right across the street from his home had just bought the first television set. Richard, Charlie, and Henry pressed their faces against the living room window to spy on this amazing invention, <laughs> sparking its magic in the living room across the road. They saw the blue light of it and some shapes here and there, but nothing else. My father, Charlie, said, we need my binoculars. <laughs> and though, as Richard told us, getting Henry to waste a drop of gasoline was like pulling wisdom teeth from an elephant, <laughs> off they drove back home to fetch those binoculars. The rest of the day was spent passing them back and forth. The viewing audience grew to include the entire household of cousins, and then the neighbor kids out back got word, and they all showed up. Eventually, a dozen pairs of hungry, magnified eyeballs were trading looks at the great invention. It would be more than three years before any of these spies would have their own televisions. But the memory of this magic day lasted their lifetimes. 
And so my father made a new and ultimately faithful friend of TV. It kept him company for the rest of his life. It eased the anxieties at family and other social gatherings, providing refuge from forced conversations and awkward silences. I sat behind, beside him in the presence of television often, comforted myself by the safe harbor it provided us, by its respite for the eyes and our speech centers and our aching hearts. That's the beginning of my father's friendship with television. With his death came an immediate and urgent need within me to compress my grief and my love and my honoring into the shape of a song. The result is this. It's titled Mr. Barker's Magic Box. I'll do this like this. Word wound down the road, Mr. Barker bought a box. It's filled with moving pictures. It even sings and talks Well, I heard they'd been invented But I never thought I'd see Such a wondrous gadget Lands so close to me Our neighbor is the banker Who owns the empty barn Across the way from the Barker place Well, it could do no harm If I climbed up to the window Pretty certain I could see That magic box at the Barker house Sounds like a plan to me I grabbed the old binoculars Dad had from the war I was on a secret mission One I'd not been on before And I climbed up quick and quiet Best sneak that I could do Soon as I peeked across the street I saw that magic blue And I watched through those binoculars Till my eyes were dry and red There was a man's head talking Couldn't see what words he said But they must have been important And I sure wish that I could hear Gonna buy myself a magic box By this time next year If it takes me longer, well, that's just how it goes. When I set my mind to something, everybody knows that I will make it happen. This head's not filled with rocks. I'll find a way to get the pay to buy my magic box. I'll find some work for pay, take on some extra chores. And if that's insufficient, I'll take on even more. I'd bake some cakes, do what it takes. I'd scrub somebody's floor to earn the dough, the green cash flow, then hit the magic store. Of course, here in the country, there isn't much to do. Not much for money, anyway. I'd better think this through. I could hawk my box of treasures, could trade my tiny cars. Heck, I'd fetch a pretty penny if I sold this old guitar. I would fetch a pretty penny if I sold this old guitar. Down the road, Mr. Barker bought a box that's filled with moving pictures. It even sings and talks. Well, I heard they've been invented, but I never thought I'd see such a wondrous gadget land so close to me.
Craig. 